God, we're grateful uh, that you provide us ways to know you. Lord, we know that one of those ways that is chief, Lord, is your word. We believe that we see uh, glimpses of who you are in creation and the goodness of the world that you've made. We, we see glimpses of who you are in other people. Lord, but we know that we need your word telling us about who Jesus is, telling us the story, Lord, that you have been writing in the world. And uh, we're grateful that we have time set aside in our schedule and that we've made this time, Lord, so that you can continue to teach us and encourage us and build us up as we desperately need that. So, Lord, make this time exactly what you want it to be for your name's sake and your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thanks, Brian. All right, friends. <clears throat> Don't be jealous. I know it looks like I'm the only person here that has a bulletin. But this actually is from September 15th, 2019. I was in my, uh, my blue notebook. So I was like, oh, I'll use that as a placeholder. Check this out, though. Here's the quote that's on the front. The gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. It's a good one, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon. That's a, Brian, you probably put that together now. So... You did, you did. Let's, let's just assume that. So. All right, y'all, we're in 1 Kings chapter 22, carrying on with our series. We've been in the book of 1 Kings, but then also tonight we are picking up with part two of a story that we started a few weeks ago and sadly had to like, we had to stop like right at the most climactic moment. I did what I always do. I bit off way more than I could chew that week. I thought that I could preach the entire uh, narrative of Micaiah the prophet in one setting, I could not. And so, and I learned it way too late in the game. So we had to kind of just stop right when it was getting good. So a recap is in order. Partly, I think we would do a recap normally, but when we started this story, it was Super Bowl Sunday. It was lights in here. Let's just say that. You're probably wondering why we have the ropes, like, roping off these areas. It's because of Sundays like that that we do, okay? So, a lot of you guys weren't here. I get it. It's okay. But let me bring you up to speed, all right? So, what we started with in this narrative is the story of these two kings. One that we're very familiar with, King Ahab, king of the, the northern region of Israel. But then also this new guy, King Jehoshaphat, his ally, who's from the south, the southern kingdom of Judah, they're planning on going up to battle together. And so they consult the prophets of the Lord, 400 of them. And 400 prophets come and they do their thing and they all unanimously say, go up to battle. You're going to win. God is with you. Now, what we learn right after that, though, is that even though these 400 prophets were all there, there's one more prophet who wasn't invited, a guy named Micaiah. And the reason he wasn't invited, because in King Ahab's words, he says, I hate that guy. He never tells me what I want to hear. And if you think I'm making that up, I'm not. He says that very candidly. So Micaiah is this guy that seems to speak the truth, no matter if it makes the king happy or if it makes the king sad, if it makes him angry or if it makes him pleased. And he wasn't invited to this gathering, but some way or another, he is sent for to come and tell these kings if they should go up to battle. And where we left off is the messenger has been sent to Micaiah, and he says, Micaiah, all the other prophets have said a good word. Just make your word like them. 
tell the king what he wants to hear. And Micaiah famously says, this was the last verse we read, as the Lord lives, what God says, that I will speak. He's committed to speaking God's word and nothing else. So, that's where we are. Now, when we started this text, we did it in a little bit of a different way. Instead of having you stand for the scripture and us reading all of the text in one go, I kind of read through it progressively throughout the entire sermon. And I want to, since we started that way, let's end that way. And I want to kind of just read it piecemeal and sort of stop as we go and, and make observations on the move. Um, but I still want to pray before we read the text. So let's do that right now. Lord, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. Okay, so verse 15 is when we're going to get going. And, and like I just said, this entire narrative has been dramatically building up to this moment when this one prophet, Micaiah, will stand against the many. He's the only one who's bold enough to speak the truth of God, even if it makes the king unhappy. He's the only one willing to stand alone and say what God's word actually says. And so now we get to verse 15. It says this. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answered him, go up in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Let's stop there and say, what? What just happened? We just said this entire narrative has been building up to when Micaiah would say the thing that no one else is brave enough to say. And he just says the same thing that all the other prophets did. He, he becomes a yes man and just tells the king what he wants to hear. What just happened? Something is off about this. And we're not alone in thinking that because apparently King Ahab thought something wasn't right here either. Instead of saying, great, we're going to go up to battle because Micaiah said so. King Ahab instead, this is continuing on with the passage. Oh, this is verse 16 actually. King Ahab says this, the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? The king realizes something is off here. And what we're reminded is that King Ahab kind of has an advantage on us. Because not only did he get to hear what Micaiah said, he got to hear how Micaiah said it. Which makes a world of difference, doesn't it? So I read just a second ago, I read verse 15 like this. I said, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But I could have just as easily read it like this. Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Yay. <laughs> Apparently that second go at it is how Micaiah spoke and how the king heard it. What he heard was sarcasm. Micaiah is being sarcastic here. And he's feigning to, to say the same thing that all the other prophets of the Lord had said. He's feigning to say the thing that the king wants to hear. But he's doing it with a tone and in a matter that makes it painfully obvious 
that it is not the truth. And apparently, this has happened before because what Ahab says is, how many times do I have to tell you, speak nothing but the truth to me? They've done this song and dance before. Where Micaiah comes in, he says what the king wants to hear, but he makes it very obvious that it's not real. It's not the truth. It's just that empty promise that the king would prefer. When the king insists on Micaiah telling him the truth, Micaiah says, okay, you want to know what I really saw? You wanted to know what the Lord really is telling you? Here it is. Verse 17, I think I've got it up on the screen. Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. We've talked before in our series on 1 Kings how the prophets view Israel as like a flock of sheep. And they view the king as God's chosen representative to care for the sheep, to protect the sheep, to even lay down their lives for the sheep. In other words, the king is the shepherd. And so if Micaiah has seen this vision with all of the sheep roaming free, lost, undirected, with no rhyme or reason, what does that mean? means they have no shepherd. The shepherd is gone. Perhaps even the shepherd is dead. Micaiah is telling King Ahab, your time is done. Your reign is over. Your role as shepherd is no more. So Ahab responds very predictably. He says, see, I told you that this guy never tells me what I want to hear. Yeah, he spoke the truth and it was hard difficult, but Micaiah told him what God had actually done. Now, that's the gist of this whole narrative. We just captured it right there. Now I want to try to lean into the spots that I feel like are right for application for us. And we're going to go backwards a little bit, back to this sarcasm idea. So, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking to yourself that it is very inappropriate a prophet of the Lord to come into this, this sacred setting and be sarcastic. Really? Is this the time for sarcasm? Is this the time for jokes? I mean, we're talking about the throne room, or it's not the throne room, it's the threshing floor, but these thrones are set up with King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. They solemnly want a word from the Lord. This is an open mic night at the club. What is Micaiah doing? It's a legitimate concern until you realize that not all sarcasm is created equally. There's times when sarcasm can communicate a deep truth that wouldn't happen otherwise. You see it sometimes in the New Testament, too. There's a commentator that I was reading this week that had this phrase that stuck with me. He said, Micaiah is using sad sarcasm. It's born out of his sorrow, and it's born out of his disillusionment of what's happening before his eyes. And he employs this sarcasm not to make a joke, but to illustrate a very sad reality. And it's this. It doesn't matter what he tells the king. The king's going to do what he's already made up his mind to do. 
Micaiah could have come giving truth or giving falsehood. He could have come with a word of the Lord or a, a word from a donkey. Which, yes, I know, in the story of Balaam, you know, God speaks through the donkey. But you know what I'm saying. He could have come with gobbledygook or truth. It didn't matter. Ahab had already committed to do what he wanted to. And Micaiah knows that. So he sarcastically tells him what everybody else says because he says, it doesn't matter if I tell you the truth or not. You're going to do what you're going to do. It is a horrifying and tragic thing when God's word and the truth of the world becomes a mere formality that has no bearing on people's lives. I'm recalling... um, Years ago, I was just chatting with our former pastor, Tom Savage. Uh, Tom was trained in a lot of different disciplines, and he's trained in even more now. But at the time, uh, he not only had his master's of divinity as a pastor, but he also had a master's in counseling. And so he was sought after in St. Louis and Roseville and even here to meet with people for counseling. And we were talking about that one. Not, not the particulars of the counseling session, you know, don't worry, that was confidential, but just counseling in general. And he said, you know what the hardest thing about it is? And I was expecting that he was going to talk about just the heartbreaking situations you learn about or just the hard situations. Um, but this is what he said instead. He said, the hardest thing about counseling is being invited in, into somebody's messy situation. Them to ask for your opinion and for your counsel. Sometimes they even pay you for it. And then they totally ignore the counsel you give them. He said, you know, as a counselor, you're in this place. You are objectively situated to be able to see what's really going on. To be able to see the things that need to change. To be able to see the new habits that need to be formed. And with optimism and naive hope, you share that with your client saying they're going to grow and heal and be transformed by this. And they just hear what you have to say and go, nah, I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. He said that is so heartbreaking and hard. I get it. It would be. And I see it with this passage. Here's Ahab, who, by the way, remember, he wasn't satisfied with the sarcastic answer. He said, no, Micaiah, you tell me the truth. How many times have I had to tell you? Don't play around. Tell me what God said. So he wants the truth, but he has no interest in actually applying the truth to his heart or being moved by it. Or having it define his life in any way so that he responds to it with sincerity. He wants to know it, but he doesn't want to be inconvenienced by it. Don't you sense a little bit of Romans chapter 1 in this? We did a series on Romans a couple of years ago, even just last year. That's why I call it, because maybe some of you guys remember. In Romans 1, we're told that human beings, all human beings... We are in tune with the truth about God through his world. We see all around us evidence of his goodness and his faithfulness and his existence. We want that truth. We know that truth. But as soon as we get it, here's what Romans 1 says. We suppress it. We push it down. We bury it. Because we don't want to conform our lives 
to the truth about God that's so obvious in all the things around us. So I see a bit of that in Ahab here. Micaiah, tell me the truth. But as soon as you tell me, I don't want anything to do with that. And if you're wondering why I'm saying that about Ahab, it's because of this. He goes to battle anyway. Micaiah just told him, here's the vision of your future. You're going to die. Your kingship is over. It's going to happen through this battle. Ahab takes that back and He's already decided what he's going to do. He wants the truth, but he doesn't want to act. This idea is reinforced all throughout the text. I know we've only read a portion of it, but the reality is as it continues on, even with the other vision that Micaiah shares, the same idea is hammered home. I want to read it for you now. Now, buckle up. This vision we're about to read is weird. I said it. I'm allowed to say that. It's going to create some questions in your mind as we look at it. But I want you to realize and remember that in the context of the whole kind of idea of what's happening in Micaiah's story, the, 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 the thing that God wants us to see is the same as the sad sarcasm. That human beings, we want the truth, but we don't want to act on it. So let's read this vision now. Micaiah shares what else he saw here. This is verse 19. Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. Stop there. I told you it was weird. And I know you've got a lot of questions about this. I do too. There's been a lot written about the details and the nuances of this particular vision. But remember the main thing. The main thing is that Ahab is someone who has an interest in the truth, but no interest in actually responding to it. And here's where I'm getting that from this vision. It has to do with the lying spirit. This is the part we all trip over, right? We say, this doesn't seem like God, a lying spirit. That's not holy and right and just. That's not very godlike. Why would God actively deceive Ahab? He's not supposed to do that. And you're right. But here's the thing. God doesn't deceive Ahab. Does he? A deception is not very deceptive if you tell the person that you are misleading them. Right? And that's exactly what God did through this vision. I was sharing with the folks up in paradise this morning that I had a flashback to like three or four years ago. I was at home at my parents' house and my sister and her family were, were in town too, so we're all together. And my youngest nephew, his name is Silas, just like Silas Heckman that we baptized tonight. Uh, he goes by Sai-Sai though. Uh, we thought that would just be a baby name, but I think it's gonna stick with him his whole life. He's in third grade and he tells his friends that he's Sai-Sai. So, Sai Sai was, uh, he was in this 
weird phase where he was all about setting traps for people. And he set a lot of traps for me while I was home that time. So this one particular morning, he works all morning on setting up this trap in our bonus room. And he closes the doors to make sure I can't see in. And he whispers whenever he's around me so I don't hear what he's saying. And he, he finally sets up this, this trap, which in the end was like uh, throwing a blanket over my head and hitting me with pillows or something. It wasn't terrible. But he comes down to the kitchen after all of that and says, uh, Tio, come upstairs with me. I'm going to play a trick on you. <laughs> Sai Sai, you don't tell me you're going to play a trick on me. After all that secrecy, after all that deception, I mean, it, the way that he salvaged it, 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 it's a good trick. Okay, man. But it, it takes me back to, to this passage. And if the point of God's deception is to truly pull the wool over Ahab's eyes and lead him in destruction without him knowing about it, well, giving this vision to Micaiah and having him tell Ahab kind of defeats the purpose, right? There's no deception here. There's just another proof that Ahab is only marginally interested in the truth. He's already set his heart on what he's going to do. God has given him all the information he needs. He knows everything about these prophets and how what they're saying is a lie. He knows everything about the mission Micaiah is on. He even knows that the intention of this battle is to lead him to destruction. It doesn't matter does it anyways. And all of this throne room scene that we see with God is just to frustratingly say, this guy knows everything. He can't say that he was in the dark about any of it. And he chooses destruction regardless. We human beings are in an odd place. I see a lot of myself in Ahab. I see a lot of Ahab and so many others I interact with every single day where we want to know the truth, but simultaneously at the same time, we have no desire to truly act on it. It's that Romans 1 sort of uh, connection we've talked about. What will break us out of that? What will get us to a place where we not only want to know the truth, but we want to embrace it and live by it? Well, that's actually, I think, where our story is going to end here. The final paragraph of this narrative of Micaiah, the last we hear of him in the Bible, this is sad to me. He's one of my favorites. Is, well, when he gets slapped. Micaiah gets slapped for what he said. After his vision that he shares about Israel scattered on the mountainside, after the vision of the lying spirit, Zedekiah, which was one of the chief prophets, goes up to him and slaps him across the face. How dare you, he says. How dare you talk to the king like that? How dare you say that the prophets of the Lord are lying to him? This is literally what Micaiah said, or excuse me, Zedekiah said. Verse 24. Zedekiah, the son of Shenanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Basically, he's saying, We can't both be speaking of the Lord. How do you dare pretend that you have his spirit and I don't? Slaps him. And he 
obviously isn't alone. King Ahab responds pretty poorly too. He throws poor Micaiah in prison for saying the truth. He gives him only enough food and water to last for a short period of time. And he says, keep him in prison until I come back from battle. Which as somebody pointed out to me this morning, would have been forever. Because Ahab didn't come back from battle. Hopefully that wasn't the case for Micaiah. Being a prophet of the Lord willing to speak his truth when you alone are doing it is a lonely, lonely place. But here's the thing that I want us to see as we end here. And I know I only have a couple more minutes. This will be quick. I want us to see how Micaiah defends himself. Or maybe more accurately, how he doesn't defend himself. How is it that Micaiah stands behind his prophecy? It might surprise you. He doesn't try to persuade anyone. He doesn't try to convince anyone. He doesn't try to employ rhetorical devices or grand speeches to make people say, believe what I'm saying is true. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't rend his garments passionately or he doesn't even point to his own credentials as a prophet. All he does is say, wait and see. That's the only proof he offers is if it's going to happen, if what I spoke is the truth, you'll see it happen. It's reminiscent of the prophet Jeremiah who is challenged by other prophets in his day. And they all have these theatrics and grand rhetorical statements. And in one point, Jeremiah is being challenged and he simply just turns his back and walks away. Why? Because he knows the proof of his prophecy is in when it happens. He doesn't have to convince anybody. Just wait and see. Micaiah's proof is see for yourself. I'm going to go sit in my jail cell. So I know that in the context of this story, Micaiah is doing that to prove that his prophecy is correct or or to let it stand for itself and let you see that his prophecy is correct. But it struck me this week as I'm preparing, this might be part of what God's word is challenging us in in, in the way that we get out of this, I want to know the truth, but I don't want to act on the truth. What will move us past that? Maybe it's the proof of Micaiah, which is what? See for yourself. I know we come from a lot of different places. I know that there are some of you in here that doubt the existence of God altogether and doubt the truth of the gospel. So you know a little bit of the truth, but you reject a lot of this truth of being real at all. I know there's others of you that have embraced so much of this. You're a follower of Jesus, but there's part of God's word that you just cannot stomach. And you're afraid to apply it to your life. You're afraid to walk down that road. You're afraid to do what Jesus says when he talks about ultimate forgiveness and loving your enemy. And giving all away to go follow him. You know the truth, but you don't really want it hit your heart so wherever you are rejecting God altogether or rejecting parts of his truth or the million places in between maybe the answer for you is not some dramatic proof or not some persuasive speaker 
or not some incredible book or documentary to read or some emotional experience as you're singing a song. Maybe the ultimate proof for you is the proof of Micaiah to see for yourself. Try it for yourself and see if it's true. I remember as a college student, I remember it as clear as day, walking across the freshman parking lot, which was like a million miles from my dorm. It was horrible, but it gave me a lot of time to think. And I remember I had been reading some books about like all these archaeological evidences for their existence of, the, of God and the truth of the Bible and whatnot. And it, it was all interesting and good, but it just hit me in that moment that the most powerful argument I had for the gospel was to tell people to see for themselves. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it. I dare you. And I dare you to come back and tell me that you didn't experience the wholeness and the truth and the joy of knowing God. So where are you in your wrestling with truth? And what is it that you need to simply taste and see? I promise you, are your doubts and your fears and your hesitations fall away when put up front or excuse me, up next to the taste test. The taste test is this idea that I was exposed to um, years ago coming across the writings of Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian from New England many centuries ago. In one of his diaries, he asked this question rhetorically. He said, how do you convince a man that honey is sweet if that man has never tasted honey? Do you describe it for him? Do you tell him about its color and its texture? Do you have mathematical formulas to prove for him the sweetness of honey? Do you have poetic metaphors and analogies? All of those might be helpful. But what is the ultimate proof that you have? A spoon dipped in that jar of honey so you can say, taste for yourself how sweet it is. That's the proof of Micaiah. He doesn't try to convince you or persuade you. He simply says, see for yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, I allow, excuse me, I ask that you allow us to taste fully of who you are and of your truth. Whether we're somebody that rejects your truth altogether and thinks it's ridiculous. Or somebody that knows you and yet there's parts of what your word says that we run away from. Whatever it might be, Lord, give us the courage to taste for ourselves and see. If it's a lie, we'll know it. But if it's true, we'll know for sure. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen.